1: influential ministers and leading ceos to make new connections and gain unique insights learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com
2: hi everyone this is your host malika Kapoor. welcome to out of office the podcast about life and leadership every week i bring you a conversation with the newsmaker speaking at a bloomberg live summit this chat is free-wheeling and informal. There's absolutely no corporate talk here. Instead, we get personal and discuss things newsmakers don't get asked about on stage or in their office. This week,
3: the reality is that this country cannot afford not to deploy 100% of its talent. It's like running a marathon on one leg.
2: Meet Kathy Matsui, Vice Chair of Goldman Sachs Japan. Kathy created the influential womanomics theory, which links the advancement of women to economic development, a theory that became a cornerstone of Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's plan to transform the Japanese economy. That was an
3: absolute shock. I thought that was a joke. I said, this is the Japanese government. Uh, They have never, ever discussed this topic of gender diversity in any sort of policy context.
2: Kathy is considered one of the most influential women in global finance, but she admits things weren't easy when she started her career in the early 90s. Speaking to my colleague Mark Dawson on the sidelines of Bloomberg's The Year Ahead Summit in Tokyo, she told him she had three strikes against her. She was young, female, and according to some, not Japanese enough. They had an insightful and very interesting conversation, and I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I did. So here's Mark with Kathy out of office.
4: The genesis of Womenomics. Mm-hmm. So, when you first thought something's an issue here, or you have the skill set to, to fix it, talk me through that. Um, how was that experience? Sure.
3: So, the. Origins of this concept of womenomics as a research topic came about back in 1999. Uh, I started my career as a strategist in January 1990, so uh, worst timing possible uh, for an equity strategist to start after the asset bubble in Japan had peaked. So for that over 10-year period, uh, first period of my career the market was absolutely crashing in Japan. My clients were writhing in pain, losing money right and left. Foreigners were dumping Japanese shares. And so the natural question to me from my client base was, Kathy, what on earth is going to allow Japan to ever grow again? Because again, there are only three drivers of economic growth. They are labor, capital, and productivity. And clearly the demographics were becoming dire. Uh, productivity was going nowhere, and capital was finite and shrinking. And so, in 1999, I had given birth to my first child. In 1996, I took four months off. I came back to work, but I found it quite odd that many of my mommy friends, my Japanese mommy friends, were not returning to their workplaces to the same degree. Obviously. Um, some of them, out of their own volition, they decided that they preferred to stay at home, which is, totally respect that choice. But I also had many friends who wanted to return to work like I had, but just were having a much more difficult time doing so, despite the fact that they were massively qualified CPAs, lawyers, you know, PhDs. And I was just puzzled as to why, despite their desire to return to work, they were not doing so. so When clients were asking me, Kathy, the demographics are so bleak, how on earth is Japan ever going to grow? And if it's not going to grow, I don't need to invest in Japan. Bye-bye. Sayonara. I'm going to go elsewhere with my money. I thought to myself, hmm, in 1999, what if? What if more Japanese women could return to work, as we saw in most other developed economies? What could that possibly do to GDP? So I'm a research analyst, so what do I do? I analyzed and I drew up some scenarios, economic scenarios, of what would happen if if Japan could actually close that gender employment gap, what could be the outcome for the economy? And back then, of course, the gap was huge, and so we determined that GDP could be lifted by something like over ten percent, which again, for a country like Japan is massive. Of course, everything is theoretical. I can play with numbers all I want. And then as time passed, I would say there wasn't, frankly, a lot of traction in this idea of bringing more women back to work back then. But suddenly in 2013, uh, Prime Minister Abe wins his second term as a prime minister. And in the drafting of the nation's growth strategy, lo and behold, there's a pillar called womenomics.
4: That was a surprise.
3: That was an absolute shock. I thought that was a joke. I said, this is the Japanese government. Um, they have never, ever discussed this topic of gender diversity in any sort of policy context, right? It was more, oh, it's a human rights issue. Let's give women equal rights, that kind of thing. It was never front and center as an economic policy agenda item. And so first you know, uh, reaction, frankly, to that Statement or that comment out of the government was, well, this is really nice, you know, um, lip, lip, service. lip service to a concept, but they're really not going to follow through. And then, even more shocking to me was they did start to follow through with a number of policy uh, changes. So, for instance, um, we have seen parental leave benefits. Japan used to have average to below OECD average parental leave benefits. Nothing special. And they did some comparisons around the world. and They said, hey, we think we could make this better. So today, Japan actually boasts one of the most generous parental leave benefits in the developed world. So the mother and the father each get one year off. And if you do the math, their take-home or pre-leave take-home pay is equivalent to about 80% of that salary before they take leave, which is, again, one of the most generous mm. in the developed world. The other big thing that I think they did was to improve transparency, transparency around gender diversity, because if you think about it, it's really hard to move that needle if you don't even know where that needle lies. And so the cabinet office, which sits under the prime minister, set out this edict in 2016 saying if you're an organization, company or public sector organization with at least 300 employees, you must start to disclose gender related statistics and set some kind of gender goal or target you could set whatever targets you want they weren't going to force a quota on anybody but it was really the first time that you could actually open up a you know a disclosure document from Toyota or Hitachi or Sony and they actually had to mention something about gender diversity that was a first and to me there's nothing more powerful than i call shame and embarrassment to drive human behavior in this country And so when one company, particularly here in Japan, so when one company, one sector does it, many others, you know, tended to follow. And so uh, that's just, you know, two two examples. And then, of course, the biggest change I think we observed um, in the last 20 years was that what used to be one of the lowest female participation rates in the developed world for women at about 56% for Japan 20 years ago is today one of the highest in the OECD at 71% surpassing the US's 66 and the Eurozone 62. So at least the numbers there's 4 million more Japanese women working today than there were, you know, 7-8 years ago. That delta of an increase or that that rate of change is quite massive. Now of course we all know that many of those women are working part-time, not in a full-time capacity. So we still have this ongoing challenge of a dearth of leadership positions for women. That still has a lot of work to go. But I think it would be unfair to say that nothing has changed. Like I said, I think some improvements have been made. And I think most importantly is in the mind itself that, you know, years ago, you never heard that word diversity or the importance of incorporating more women in the workplace as something that would help business performance or something that would help economic growth that was never discussed. And now it's kind of a normal thing for newspapers to write about, media outlets like Bloomberg to write articles about too. So I think bringing that um, concept out of the realm of human rights or a CSR kind of activity for corporates and into the context of this is an absolutely absolute economic and business imperative has really changed the game.
0: Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
4: Back, back in the 90s, you had this idea and, and you mentioned your fellow mothers, your friends who were, grew up in Japan. Mm-hmm. What? Did they ever tell you any reason why or did you ask them, you know, what? why aren't you going back into work? Is, is, this, is yeah. there this invisible force that's stopping yeah. you? What, what, did, what so did they say So the to
3: reasons you? were varied naturally. So for some, it was the issue of their parents or the relatives were not nearby. They couldn't get a spot in the local daycare or daycare options were very limited. And so they really had no choice but to quit working or stay, you know, off ramp, we call it. Um, To care for the for the child. Other reasons, though, besides those, are what I would categorize as infrastructure, kind of the hardware part of the reason. um, Sort of categorization. I think the other bucket is what I call more the software uh, aspects. What I mean by that is when women told me that it was not easy to return to their workplace. In some cases, their positions were taken away silently. They did not have a position to go back to or during their maternity leave, which in Japan's typical case is one year. That's a pretty long time. And in that one year's time, their employers just basically cut off communication. They had no idea what was going on. And again, depending on the role, if you don't know what's going on even for a month, let alone 12, you could really be left out of the loop, right? And so it was a combination of what I call the hardware and the software types of reasons that I think just made it quite difficult. You also, of course, have on top of all this societal mores. Uh, I hear the typical mother-in-law you know, issue. My mother-in-law you know, refuses to let me work while I'm trying to raise a child, right? So uh, either explicit or implicit to t- to sort of uh, degrees of pressure being applied also to these women. I had a friend who came crying to me because she said, I cannot believe this has just happened in the year. I think it was like 2012." and, you know, 12 my husband tried to attend our child's PTA meeting. He was the only father at that meeting. The head of the school promptly informed my husband that next time he should not come and he must send his wife, which sent her just ballistic, right? And so why is that? <laughs> you know, there is no rhyme or reason or rational logic behind that that statement, but it's just kind of how it is. And if we think about the general stereotypes that are pervasive in the Japanese media, for instance, or commercials or whatever you see, you know, storybooks, how are women and men portrayed is also deeply, deeply embedded in in Japanese society. So it's really a combination of all the above um, that I think has made, has in the past made it more difficult. But again, it's 2019 and the reality is that this country cannot afford not to deploy 100% of its talent. It's like running a marathon on one leg
4: so you you never had any problems with your mother-in-law
3: my mother-in-law was in germany my parent my my parents-in-law are germans and they were in germany she was a doctor so she you know um, never had issues with me working my own mother my parents are farmers and my mother was a farmer's wife working in the in our farm for the entire duration of my childhood so I actually didn't know what a stay-at-home mother was, and so to me, it was it was natural that I was going to work.
4: You grew up in the states. I did. Do you think that's there's there's a lot lots of things said that for a culture to or a situation any situation to really change often needs a outsider. So mm-hmm. if you did grow up in Japan, do you think you would have come up with womanomics or helped develop? Maybe
3: not. It's by no means um, true that the U.S. is any gold standard for gender diversity by any means. But I think this, the relative degree to which I saw women in more uh, aspects of American society, be it the world of politics or, you know, managing businesses, just in leadership or decision-making positions, they're more prevalent versus here. And I really feel it here because I work in financial services. So I was back in 1990 when I started my career, the only female Japanese portfolio strategist.
4: Were there any ov- overt displays of sexism, or was it was it all quite covert? No, if, if there
3: um, was any? it was uh, you know, my gender was only one of the what I call three strikes against me. I was uh, not only female, and all of my clients are male, but I was very young, just out of you know grad school and then i'm not really japanese my blood is 100% japanese but i was born and raised in the states so that didn't really qualify me as a as a genuine japanese native right so i had not only the, the gender to deal with but my you know um my age or lack of experience as well as my nationality to de- to cope with so it was just one of the strikes that i had to manage but at the end of the day i am uh, very fortunate to be in a role um where my performance is quite measurable clients vote or they don't vote for you and so it's pretty transparent that evaluation process mm. uh, versus i think a lot of other roles which may be more difficult to figure out why is that person promoted versus an, another person not so Are any
4: clients that you still interact with that maybe they've or, or colleagues that might have changed their perception of you You've seen it, Oh, Shave. yeah. <laughs>
3: I remember distinctly one of very extraordinarily painful meeting. I had It was a Japanese trust bank. I must have been in my role as a as a senior strategist. I started as a, of course, a junior one. But shortly after I'd become a senior one, I had a meeting with it was like the butcho, uh the manager of this um, very large Japanese uh, trust bank, and not just him, but you know his ten colleagues as well. And essentially, it was the probably by far the most painful 60 minutes of my career because anything I tried to tell him and his colleagues got shot down. Uh, most Japanese clients are very polite. They wait after you give your 30-minute presentation to then ask questions. This guy was right off the bat, hammering away. He wouldn't even let me finish sentences. He was butting in and saying, that is incorrect. That's a ludicrous assumption, et cetera, et cetera. But I will say, being tested like that and being, you know, frankly, humiliated was one of the best learning experiences I've ever had in my career. I came away from that meeting. I was in tears, but I came away from that meeting saying, okay, I clearly was not prepared. I did not know the answer to most of the questions he had asked. So next time, I am damn well going to be more prepared. Right. And as time went on, this um, gentleman, uh, became one of my best clients, and he admitted that looking back, he knew uh, that I was you know young, unexperienced, uh, my Japanese was still very faulty. He knew like most strategists in Japan, they grow up as a sector analyst, and then they become a strategist. I was a strategist right off the bat. But I actually didn't know too much about industry, I didn't have a lot of experience visiting companies, so I didn't have a lot of micro knowledge, which other strategists w- would have. so a lot of the questions he was poking at me were uh, more on kind of the micro side or things that I really had no clue about so I just did my homework and I grew a lot you know from that experience so painful as it was back then like many life experiences there was a silver lining.
4: And um, also in in your in your private life you've overcome things as well Mm -hmm. you had uh, illness previously do you think that's everything now seems easily overcome after you've been through that?
3: Yeah, so um, you're talking about my uh, health challenge in uh, 2001. So just some context, in 2000, I was not only made the first female partner at Goldman in Japan, but I was also um, ranked number one in I.I. for Equity Institutional Investor magazine, which back then was like the thing for analysts as the best Japan equity strategist. So I was on top of the world. And then in 2001, in the spring, I um, was diagnosed with breast cancer, and it wasn't, frankly, a complete shock because my mother had had it, my grandmothers had had it, so I knew that I was at risk, but the way my life was, I was on top of the world, and then to be like bombed by this diagnosis was, of course, crushing, but... I was very kind of almost analytical about it. I said, you know, I actually even, I think, told my one of my best friends at the time when I had the diagnosis, I said, you know what, this is a real pain in the you know up because I'm just frankly too busy to have cancer right now. (laughs) You know, I cannot put my life on hold, which was, you know, if I think back now, like how stupid was I back then? You know, similar to that experience I characterized earlier with that difficult client. You know, facing your mortality, and I was only 36, and I had just given birth to my second child, and she was not even one. It just made me realize that, you know, as the as the uh, trite phrase goes, life is short. And so I really decided to rebalance my life. I focused on things that were not just work-related. I started to get involved in charities, the most important of which is the Asian University for Women, where we're trying to empower young women like me, who are first-generation university entrants. Uh, because I think they're going to change the world. Um, And so that was a, looking back, a really welcome wake-up call for my life.
2: That was Kathy Matsui, Vice Chair of Goldman Sachs Japan, in conversation with Bloomberg's Mark Dawson. And remember, you can find more episodes of Out of Office on the Bloomberg Terminal or on our website, which is Bloomberg.com. We're also on Twitter. Our handle is @podcast, and we're on Apple Podcasts and also on Spotify. We'd love it if you could take a minute to rate and review our show, so please do that if you can. And I do hope you'll join us again for more candid, informal conversations with newsmakers. This episode was produced by Laura Carlson. I'm Malika Kapoor. You can find me at ThisIsMalika on Twitter. Thank you for listening.